Jude, verse 8. Here's what it says. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they don't even understand, and they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Verse 11, woe to them. They have walked in the way of Cain. They've abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. They have perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. All right, have you found Jude yet? I mean, I hope you have. If not, I'm going to read uh, quite a bit at this morning. We'll look at the whole book of Jude. The title of the message today, if you like having titles, is Stand to the End. Stand uh, to the End. And I was thinking, uh, especially as uh, the hurricanes come on shore, uh, one thing that's almost obligatory now in the media is a Weather Channel person standing on the beach in hurricane force winds. So he's got to stand out there to show us it's windy, right? He's standing there and his jacket's in the wind. And he's getting battered, and he's standing, and, and slowly, the closer the storm gets, he's going to lean further and further into the wind, and then pretty soon, he's in a hotel lobby. So, you know, okay, it got too windy for, for the dude to be standing out on the beach. And uh, this is what, uh, what Jude is talking about to us. He's saying, we are standing against the wind, and in fact, in many ways, when we seek to walk with Christ, we face an enemy or opposition that is much like the wind, it can't be seen. We can't really see it. It's a, it's, a, it's a resistance to our desire to want to live for the Lord and to have faith with Him. And, and what the Bible calls us to do is stand. Stand against the resistance that we face. And there's a number of uh, things that we have to stand against, and I uh, will point them out to you hopefully this morning. Look with me at Jude, uh, verse 4. By verse 4, I meant verse 3, of course. Here's what it says in verse 3. Beloved... I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, but I find it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Stand for the faith. What he's meaning here is, I'm writing to you because of the situation you find yourself in. You need to be willing to stand in the face of, of the high winds. There's something coming, there are things coming that are, that are batting, battering around your uh, faith and reliance in the Lord, and it's time now to take to stand and, and resist the opposition that comes against you. And we want to look very carefully at what the Bible describes as the, as the things we need to stand against. And in this first uh, part of it, we need to stand to the end against an unseen enemy. So let's just read the first four verses of Jude. You've already found it. This is what it says. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Verse 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, 
ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Who is Jude? Verse 1. Jude is a servant of Jesus and a brother of James. So what did Jude call James? Jimbo. Of course, everybody, all brothers call them. Now what's really interesting is Jude and James, their mother was Mary, their father was Joseph. So that means Jesus' mother, Mary, now Jesus' father was not Joseph, Jesus' father was God, Mary and Joseph had children after Jesus was born, and Jude is one of those children, along with his brother, James. So what's really interesting about this introduction, Jude does not say half-brother of Jesus, does he? He says very carefully here, Jude, a servant of Jesus. Well, although he grew up with Jesus and he knew him, he knew Jesus was a man, but he was God in the flesh. And in his mind, it was... His, his relationship with Jesus was more accurately described as a servant, not bro. And he saw that as a difference. He says, my brother, though, is James. And James was an important leader in the church in Jerusalem. And so Jude here is saying, in humility, I understand who God is. It's not me, and it's Jesus, the one who brought me hope uh, through dying on the cross. So he writes this as a, one who humbly is serving Christ and understands how authority and the grace of God has come to us uh, through Jesus. And he says, I want you to stand for the faith because some people have crept in unnoticed into the body and they are teaching things and leading people in ways that will lead to destruction. Look what it says about these people. They've crept in unnoticed. Nobody seen, saw them. That's why we said, stand to the end against an unseen enemy, people who are coming in, and what they were doing is this, is they are perverting the grace of God into sensuality. How would you do that? It's very easy. This is not complicated. Jesus comes as a man. He dies on the cross, and the Bible teaches that because he died on the cross, anybody who would trust him, their, their sins are forgiven. And he rose from the dead, which means we have hope of one day rising from the dead with him in the future. That's, it's very simple. The question is not whether or not the Bible teaches this. The question is whether or not we believe it. And so the Bible teaches that in Christ, when we put our faith in him for forgiveness, all of our sins are washed away, the sins we have done in the past, the sins you are doing right now, right, right now, and then the sins you're planning on doing this afternoon. All of them are forgiven. So what some people were doing were coming into the body of believers and saying, God has forgiven us for everything, so therefore, why don't we do everything? It's awesome. We get that sense of spiritual importance and significance and eternal value by having a relationship with God. That's awesome, and we still get to do whatever we want. It is great. We get to both be religious and whatever we want. And on the, on the one side, because you're sitting in church, I know how you're at, you're like, oh, no, 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 that's terrible. Harumph. That's what we say. That's terrible. And then we go home and do exactly that. Oh, God's forgiven me. It's all good. I do whatever I want. So this is what they were, they had crept in unnoticed and they were saying something that seemed to make sense. No, that's right. God has forgiven us for everything, hadn't he? Yeah, he's for, so yeah, so I, yeah, we can do whatever we want. This, this makes perfect sense and it's what I want. How amazing is that? So they had crept in unnoticed and what Jude wanted to do was caution them and explain this is a significant problem to assume this. He says, I want you to understand you've made a mistake. We think that happiness, we think that delight, 
will come from having everything that might bring us pleasure as well as having faith in God and relationship with God. And what the Bible is going to argue is actually having Christ alone is enough to bring us delight. That Christ alone is enough and those other things are an empty well. And so this is what he wants the, the body of believers to do. This is what he wants us to do is to contend for the faith. To stand and say, everything about me says, I would love it if I could have a relationship with God as well as do whatever I want. But instead, I want to contend for the faith and say, Jesus is better than all those other things. I can say no to the passions of the flesh because I have everything I might otherwise want in Christ. We might put it this way. The gospel says this. We have been saved from our rebellion to God. We have been saved from it. Because of his work on the cross, it's washed clean. We have not been saved in order to live in rebellion to God. We've been saved from sin, not saved in order to sin, and the enemy has crept in unnoticed, and they've gained influence, and they've gained trust, and people are listening and saying, wait, certainly God wants me to be happy. Certainly, I'll remind you of that illustration we used the other day, because it stuck with me. You ready? You remember? Do you remember what it was? It's the cake on the counter. There's a cake on the counter. Mom has made the cake, and mom wants me happy, so therefore, I will eat the cake. And nobody here has ever done that. And we discuss ways to do that and not get caught. And you, if you didn't take notes that day, I don't know what, to, I can't help you. But this is how we, we approach our relationship with God. God has made money. Money makes me happy. So therefore, God wants me to spend all of my time seeing how many dollar bills I can stack up. It, it makes perfect sense. God wants me happy. Money makes me happy. Dollar bills, yo. That's, it's a very simple way of understanding. Now, we don't think about it that way, but we do that all the time. And what he's saying is we need to contend for the faith, saying, I need to learn to say no to my passions and put a check there and say, I think Christ is better than these things, than pursuing happiness in ways that I know lead uh, to emptiness. So he's calling us to stand for the faith and say, the grace of Christ has saved us from our sin not saved us to give us a license to do whatever we want. Look what he says. The ungodly people pervert the grace of God into sensuality. By God's grace, he receives lovingly those who have sinned and continue to sin who are resting in him. By God's grace is not him saying, I'm cool with whatever you want to do. What he is asking us to do is to train our hearts and minds to see the error that we should see Jesus in his word and contend for the faith and say no to those things we would desire instead of looking for ways to try and say, no, it's okay, God wants me to do this. All right, stand to the end against the enemy. We want to get to the next section. It's the meat and potatoes of this uh, book. We have an enemy. The enemy, though, uh, one of the problems with this teaching that God wants us to do whatever we want is we like it. We really like this idea. I might put it this way, and, and we're going to be beginning here in verse 5. Uh, to someone who's trying to give up smoking. I'm not saying you're trying to give up smoking or not trying to give up smoking, but it, they make uh, things you can put on your arm. They make gum you can chew. Uh, I don't know what else they make. There's a lot of things you can do to try and curb your desire to stop smoking, if, if, if that's what you want to do. So somebody says, well, I want to quit smoking, but the problem is I have this urge to smoke because I have this a dependency on nicotine. So I'm going to put the nicotine patch on, I'm going to chew the gum, 
uh, I'm going to smoke something else. I don't know, what, whatever you might, I don't know what you might come up with. But see, this is the real tension. Somebody is saying on the one hand, I don't want to do this because, for, you know, I don't think it's healthy, uh, you know, whatever it might be. On the other hand, I really want to do this. Right, so this is a very normal thing. We, so the problem is when somebody comes in with a sense of religious authority and says, no, actually, it's totally cool. Smoking is totally okay for you. In fact, it actually helps your health. It prolongs your life. It doesn't do these things. But that's what we do with our sinful behavior. What I'm doing doesn't hurt anybody. This, this sin, this rebellious habit, when I, when I gossip, nobody's getting hurt because I'd be sure to tell the person I'm talking to not to tell anyone because that always works because they never do. They always, when you tell them, this is just between you and me. It isn't, does that not work? Okay, it doesn't work. So, so we say, well, I've got these things. I shouldn't do them. I know they're wrong. I know God would, uh, would say no to these things, and I know they're forgiven in Christ, but I really want to do them. So then when somebody comes in and says, no, those things are totally cool. In fact, God's happy when you do those things. Then we, we say, well, yeah, that sounds really good. So we have to stand to the end not just against an enemy on the outside, but we have to stand to the end knowing our appetite is in error. Our desire is uh, for things that will um, take us down the wrong road. And the enemy will appeal to the passions that already exist within us. Let me read just a couple more verses. We didn't read them before. Verse 5 of Jude. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. That's rough. What happened? You guys remember the story of Israel coming out of Egypt? Ten plagues, let my people go. No, they leave, go through the Red Sea, and now they're walking out in the wilderness, and then everybody's really upset because nobody packed lunch. And they're starving, and they're getting really upset. And so God provides them food. Now they're getting really upset because nobody brought any water. So God provides them water. Now they're getting upset because they're bored. And God provides them Netflix. And I'm kidding. That's, I'm just trying to keep you interested. Um, anyway, then they get to the promised land, and they go in, and God has provided them food. God has provided them water. God has provided them uh, protection from their enemies. God has provided them all these things. They get to the promised land. They go into the promised land. and say, oh, they're huge. We'll never beat them. Let's go back to Egypt. And so what happened was they didn't stand up. God had showed them over and over and over again. It's not so much what you want that is important. What matters, am I going to provide for you? And so at, in the heat of the moment, they said, God will not show up for us. And so therefore, we have to figure out this, on, this out on our own. We're going to go back to Egypt. And the Bible says, God said, fine, I'll go into the promised land with the next generation, 40 years they spent out in the wilderness. And so that's why he's saying, he, the people of Egypt were destroyed because they wouldn't trust God. They said, no, we know what's true. What I want is true. What I want is true. I don't know what God is up to. Quick laboratory test. When you're hungry, what do you want to do? Not a trick question. Eat. After you eat, are you hungry? Not yet. I mean, in a minute you will be, but right after you push away from the table, you say, oh, that was, that's the stuff. So this is how we're programmed. If I have this desire, the thing that meets that desire makes the desire go away. So therefore, that's the only thing that I need to, to have. And God does it differently. He says the desire we have for the things of this world should remind us that he is all we need. 
And we say, but then I'm still hungry. And God says, I will provide what you need. And the people of Israel in the desert missed that. God was going to feed them, but he wanted them to see that what they were desiring doesn't tell them the truth. They need to desire God, and then God will provide those things that they need. So they were trusting their appetites, and their doubt in God to meet their appetites led them astray. So that's why it says, listen, pay attention to the people of Israel. They were destroyed because they didn't believe. Verse 6 of Jude. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, they left their proper dwelling, and he's kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day of judgment on that great day. So what is it? the Bible tells us at a certain point in history, a certain number of the angels rebelled against God because the problem with God is, is he's totally in charge. And many of the angels wanted to be in charge. So they rebel against God because they say, we know what we want. We want to be in charge. And the way to have that satisfied is not to be in charge, but to trust that God is in charge. And so instead of pursuing God in that moment, they pursued their appetites, which was authority, and as a result, they were cast away from the presence of God. Okay, one more example that is in here. Verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which indulged in sexual immorality. So what he's saying is, look, these cities are an example. People who pursued pleasure as its own end instead of pursuing the Lord. And the result was pursuing their own appetites was they separated themselves from God in rebellion and said, we know how to meet our needs and God doesn't, so therefore we will pursue our satisfaction through sexual immorality. And the result is they experience judgment, just like Egypt or Israel, just like the angels. The issue was they pursued their own satisfaction instead of pursuing the Lord. And we have to understand, when we look at these examples, our temptation is to say, well, thankfully I'm not like any of those lamos." He gives us these examples so we look in our own heart and say, what are the places in my life where I'm saying, I know what I need? And God has two options, to get on the program with what I say I need or to take a hike. And that's the normal reaction of every human in dealing with our appetites. We say, I know what I need, and if God can't get a clue, see you later. And we have to stand against that, not against this enemy on the outside, some kind of opposition force all the time. Sometimes that's the case. Most of the time, the issue is what's going on in our own heart. One author, Paul Tripp, puts it this way. The sin inside of us is a greater danger to us than the sin of others outside of us. I think that's absolutely true. So we stand to the end against the appetite in our heart that says, we want what we want, and I'll take God as long as he's on board. And to the degree that God is not on board, then see you later, God. A couple of other examples from Jude about people pursuing their appetites, but adding a cool religious twist. Look at it. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. This is down in verse 11. Woe to them. They have walked in the way of Cain. Who was Cain? Anybody remember? Abel's brother, first murderer. So what happened was Cain and Abel came to worship the Lord, and for some reason, somehow, they understood what God anticipated and how they would worship, and Abel put together a sacrifice of uh, animals, a burnt offering, where instead Cain came to God with a sacrifice of his own design, something from the garden, probably asparagus, we would presume, maybe cauliflower. I don't know what it might be. Brussels sprouts, whatever your vegetable of choice might be. 
So he comes to, the point isn't not so much what they offered. The point is, Abel had a mind towards approaching God on God's terms. And Cain had a mind towards, I'm going to approach God according to the way I see fit. And that was the error of Cain. I will approach God on my terms. And that's the mistake that was happening to the church that Jude was writing to. People saying, I will approach God on my terms, meaning I want to be religious, but I don't want to let go of any of the things that I know are wrong. I don't want to let go of my sensual appetites. I don't want to let go of my greed. I don't want to let go of my gossip. I don't want to let go of my lust. I don't want to let go of any of these things. These are normal things. I'm just a human. God, get on board. And what the Bible said, that's a big mistake. To approach God on our terms, God would come in and say, just hold on, simmer down a little camper. Who's God in this situation? Because it's not you. Who, what are the other examples? Cain, the, woe to Balaam, Balaam's error. Balaam made a mistake of thinking he could get rich off of his relationship with God. He sought to sell his religious services to kings and kingdoms and to curse the people of Israel. And he made the error of pursuing his own appetite, which was wealth, and doing so in his relationship with God. And that was an error. Then it's a mistake, because instead of pursuing God, he pursued wealth, and it led to emptiness and nothing. And in fact, it finally led to his death. And the last one is Korah. These three examples, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Korah led a rebellion in the desert against Moses. Moses was the leader of the people. God had told Moses to lead the people out of Egypt to the promised land. Korah and his followers had a problem. And what was the problem Korah and his followers had? They didn't like Moses. Why didn't like Moses? Because he was the boss. The problem with Moses being the boss for Korah was that means Korah wasn't the boss. And Korah wanted to be the, be the leader. And so he led a rebellion of a violent uprising against the leadership that God had established, and so therefore, in the wilderness, God had judgment on them. Woe to Cain, Balaam, and Korah. They were all judged for their presumption, and we need to understand this. The, the, the thing they had all had in common, they were very religious. Here's something, something we as Christians need to get into our heads. Sometimes we think, oh, we gotta, gotta protect ourselves from people outside who do things we think are yucky. I'm being silly on purpose. Well, that's all I do. So I, I was thinking, now, because that's what I do. And, and what he's saying is, no, no, no. The issue is religious people who are doing things God doesn't want. The issue is not build a fence. How high a fence can we build around uh, the church to make sure people outside the church don't get in? The problem is now you just trapped yourself in a room with people doing some terrible things. And that's the issue here. The issue isn't merely that people are pursuing their own passions. For these people, it's saying, I'm pursuing whatever I want, and I'm a religious person. I love the Lord. And the writer of Jude is saying, this is a greater danger. This is a, a significant danger when people can think, I can be religious in any way I see fit. God is who he says, and he says, there is one way to relate to God, and we don't get uh, to choose. Okay, he uses a couple of more examples here. Um, he probably only wrote one letter to these folks because it's pretty offensive. Here's what these folks are selling. This is, I'm trying to find it here. Uh, this is verse 12. People who are selling a relationship with God that gets you whatever you want, here's how he describes them. They are hidden reefs 
at your, excuse me, at your love feasts. So people would get together, especially in the first century as Christians, they would eat together quite a bit. So we'd have these feasts, and what they were is times for people to get together, share food together, uh, make sure those who didn't have food would get enough to eat. And these uh, false teachers would show up at these love feasts, and there were hidden reefs. Now, a reef you can see as a sailor is great, because you can see it, and you can go around it. But what he's saying, these are hidden reefs. They're under the surface of the water. Nobody saw the danger because they seem so great and they seem so polite and they seem so happy. And just because they got some things they do on the weekends that aren't good, what's the big deal? And they're hidden reefs that are dangerous. Not that they struggle with sin. The issue is they're saying sin is okay with God. And he's saying this is a danger. What they're selling is dangerous. They are hidden reefs. Look at the next one. They feed, they're like shepherds who feed only themselves. They seem like they're looking out for your best interest. See, religion is such a pain. It's always telling you what you can't do. Listen, I want to give to you something. I want to give you freedom. You get to do whatever you want to do. And say, oh, this guy's looking out for my best interest. He said, no, you misunderstood it. They are feeding only themselves, not looking to your interest. They are looking to satisfy only their own desires. How else is this looked at? Waterless clouds swept along by the winds. What's a waterless cloud? A farmer has got his, his land and the, the crops are failing because they haven't been watered and all of a sudden on the horizon a big cloud is blowing over. It's a dark cloud and it blows over and it blocks out the sun. He gets all stoked because my, my crops are going to get watered and then it just blows over and no rain comes. He said, what? So he put all of his hope in this cloud that was coming and it provided no rain. It just blocked out the sun for a bit and then blew on by. And that's what this teaching seems like. Look, you get God and everything you want, so finally you can be satisfied, and it seems like it might offer hope. And Judah's saying, no, 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 it's like a cloud, a waterless cloud. It's going to blow over, and you're going to be left parched. Some more examples he gives. A fruitless tree in autumn. People who would travel, especially in the first and second century, would sometimes, part of making sure they had enough food to eat is to, to pick fruit along the way. So you see a fruit tree on the way. Oh, man, this is great. I'm going to pick some some figs. You get up to the fruit tree and it's barren. It has nothing. It's a useless tree. Look at the last example he gives at the end of verse 13. Wandering stars. Wandering stars. So someone who would say, you can have the Lord and everything you ever wanted in the passions of your flesh are like wandering stars. So what a sailor would do is he would look up into the sky and he would plot his uh, ship's direction based on uh, the location of the stars, and a wandering star will, will trick a sailor. If he doesn't know to look out for planets, all of a sudden he could be going the wrong direction, and he doesn't even know it because a planet doesn't follow the same routine as the stars. And that's what a wandering star is. So all of a sudden now the, the sailor goes, oh, we've been going the wrong direction because the star moved on me. And that's what these folks are like. Look, look, you can have the Lord, and you can have everything you've ever wanted too, and it seems like that would be right, and then you get going a little further down the way, you realize it is destruction. How do we relate to God? If it's not on our terms, how do we relate to God? It's very simple. It's by faith. We relate to God through trusting Him. We relate to God by saying, I have rebelled against Him, and I need forgiveness, so I trust what Jesus did on the cross forgives me for my rebellion. And when we trust God for that, he forgives us of our sin. The idea then is to live in relationship with God with our sin behind us, not in front of us. We all struggle with sin in many ways, but it's not a permission slip to keep doing what we've already been 
forgiven of. All right, some of us are wondering, well, maybe I'm one of these people, so, right? Weren't you? None of you were? Well, we're about to find out. There are some symptoms in here of things that show up in our life when we are filling our appetites as well as claiming to be religious. Here's what it says. It is down in verse 16, just some symptoms. And maybe it makes you uncomfortable to look this closely at your own life. If not, you can think about these symptoms in relation to the person sitting next to you. Um, just don't, don't tell them their score. That, here we go. Here are the symptoms of folks who are not standing against their appetite for error. They are grumblers. They are malcontents. What's a malcontent? Someone who's never happy with anything. Malcontent, not happy. Following their own sinful desires. That's pretty generic. They are loud-mouthed boasters. Never done anything wrong. I did that one thing wrong that one time. I thought I was wrong about it. Turned out later I was right. So there was that. Loud-mouthed boasters. Showing favoritism. Someone who only hangs out around with certain people because that's my kind of people. I hang around with that kind of people. Whatever that kind of people is. Showing favoritism to gain advantage. Using others in relationship for my own purposes. All of these things, boasting, malcontent, grumbling, these are symptoms that we've eaten the poison of, I can love Jesus and do whatever I want. Because if I say a part of my purpose of living is to satisfy my passions, if my passions aren't satisfied, I will grumble about it. I will not be contented because the fact is our passions can never be fully satisfied. It's not possible. Some of us have tried. And you get to the end of the road and you say, it didn't satisfy like I thought it would. Or it only satisfied for a period of time and then it went away. And the result is pursuing our own agenda and the passions of our flesh instead of pursuing satisfaction in the Lord is over time we grumble and we're discontented and we have to boast about our exploits because inside we're an empty shell and there's nothing left. And these are the symptoms that we've succumbed to the error of saying, I can call myself religious and pursue whatever I want. There's a place there to look at our own hearts. Are we grumblers? Are we malcontents? On the inside, are we being eaten up and so we act out to, on those on the outside? The issue there is we've tried to satisfy our soul with stuff that doesn't satisfy Worse yet, we've tried to satisfy our soul with stuff that doesn't satisfy and said, and I love Jesus, and he's cool with it. And Jesus says, I died for you so you would be satisfied by me and not that other stuff. Stand to the end against our appetite for error. Okay, let's look at the last couple of verses, and then we'll get ready to shut her down. Stand to the end against scoffers. One of the first questions the Bible asks, actually it's not the Bible, it's a serpent in Genesis, is this. Did God really say? That's a famous question. It's a question that's asked over and over again. And that's the question that we ask in our hearts and minds when we're confronted with, you know, I really want to do this, but I'm not sure if God's cool with it. And then what we'll say is, but did God really say he was against it? Did he? I don't think he did. I think we're good. Look what it says in verse 17 through verse 23. You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. 
It is those who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. You, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So what he's saying here is we need to take an active stand against the appetites of our passions, the appetites of our flesh, because we have to remember, the Lord said, there are those who are going to come who are going to tell us, you can do whatever you want and still love the Lord. You can do whatever you want, and God is okay with it. And we have to stand against those who would divide us by saying, listen, you're just a goody two-shoes. Get off your religious high horse. And he said, in the last time, there will be many people who will do this. And I don't want to throw everybody under the bus, just almost everybody. You ready? If you're watching TV, and it's Christian television, to the exclusion of some things, okay, but a lot of the time, you've got to be watching out for scoffers who are going to get on the TV and say, listen, here's the problem. God wants you to have all the money in the world. And the way you need to have all the money in the world is sign a big fat check to me. And then God is going to give you all the money in the world. These are scoffers seeking to divide. And he's saying we need to be on the lookout for in our own hearts and, and outside, people who would cause divisions by saying, uh, God wants you to have everything you've ever wanted, and they cause division. And these have been predicted from the beginning of time. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 5, just really quick. Galatians chapter 5, it's going to be up on the screen, so if you don't have, have it in front of you, the, uh, the words are going to be up there. I'm going to read kind of a chunk here, verse 16 to verse 26, like 10 verses. This is what it says in, in Galatians 5. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay, just a quick repeat. Walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So right here, Bible verse, it says the opposite of what the scoffers would teach. The scoffers are saying, you can walk with the Lord and have everything you want, whereas what the Bible is teaching here, walk by the Spirit, that is, walk in accordance with God way, God's ways, and you won't be seeking to gratify the desires of your flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. Desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other. They keep you from doing the things you want to do. If you're not led by the Spirit, or I should say, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Here, so he gives us a list, as though we needed a list. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I, I love, that's my favorite. And things like these. What'd you miss, bud? I don't know what the things like these that are in your head. All right. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The fruit of the Spirit, that is the things that we do when we're walking by the Spirit are these things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions, the first list, and if we live by the Spirit, let us walk and keep in step 
with the Spirit. Let's not be conceited, provoking each other and envying one another. So he's saying here, stand to the end. Scoffers will say this. You can walk with Jesus and do whatever you want. And the Scripture tells us this. When we walk with Jesus, we, we by nature walk away from the desires of the flesh. That's the intention. We walk by the, the Spirit, following the Lord, seeking to walk away from our desires to gratify our flesh. The two are opposed to one another. Stand to the end against scoffers who divide. Okay, just two more things back in Jude, and then we're going to wrap up Jude. Now, some of you are wondering if we're closing with the song, Hey Jude. I don't think we are. Um, they were going to put that together, decided, decided against it. Although it's a great sing-along song, I think maybe next week. Look what it says at the end. Beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Build yourselves up. Here's what's really important about this uh, uh, for those of us who are Christians that we need to look at this and understand. We tend to nowadays think very individualistically about our walk with the Lord. So when we read the Bible saying, build yourself up, we think, okay, what do I got to do? And it is actually, in the Bible, very unusual for it to be talking to individuals. In this particular case, uh, the way it's worded in the original is more important. He's saying, church, build yourself up. As a body of believers, come up with the means by which you will have enough relational connection with one another that you can say, dude, what are you doing? Well, I think it's okay. No, that's not okay. By grace, you're forgiven, but let's get off that train. That's, that's where we build each other up, where we, we encourage each other to walk by the Spirit in joy and peace and patience and kindness instead of seeking to gratify the desires of the flesh, to go back down that road that we know that leads to not satisfaction but greater hunger and greater difficulty where we build one another up in the, flesh, in the Spirit. So this is something I think many of us need to spend a little time thinking about. Is, is my, the entirety of my walk with the Lord about me? Is it always, what do I need to do to be dedicated to the Lord? What do I need to do to walk? Or, or do I sometimes need to think a little more broadly and say, my relationship with the Lord is connected with other Christians in what way? If most of my Christian life, if most of my walk is walked in isolation or on my own, I'm missing a lot of the joy that comes with being in the body of believers. Let's look at the last, uh, verse 23, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Do others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by flesh. Seek victory over sin by the Spirit and seek to help others. So here's the difference. You got somebody who's caught up into a sin and they got it, they're addicted to it or it's a habit they can't break. They're not saying it's right. They're just saying they can't quit. All right, so this verse is saying, help them out. Show mercy, show grace, show love, show uh, strength, whatever it takes to help that person overcome their struggle. That's one thing. He said, for those who are struggling with sin, as a body of believers say, we're all in. How can we help? What can we do to, to engage with you in grace and love and mercy? The, the Bible is not teaching us, you know, anybody who sins is on the outs. The people, the scoffers here are those who are saying, sin is okay. So I, we, we should say it this way. It's okay to struggle with sin. The problem is when we're not struggling. Say, no, it's cool. 
When we're struggling with sin as a body of believers, we should say, I'm all in with you with grace and mercy. However long it takes, the ups, the downs, the wins, the losses, we've got this together. But what we will not abide or ought not to abide is someone who would say, no, sin is okay. And there's a big difference between the two. Does that make sense? I can't tell if it does, but I'll just trust it does. It does for me, so I guess that's what matters, right? Okay. Stand to the end against the unseen enemy. Stand to the end against our own appetite for sin. And stand to the end against scoffers who would divide by telling us to pursue our appetites instead of the Lord. Okay, just a couple of quick questions just by way of maybe helping you think of ways to apply this in your life. Uh, a professor at Western Seminary, uh, Dr. Gary Bashir, said this. I thought it was a pretty good quote. Uh, there isn't a devil under every rock, but the devil's under some of the rocks. And sometimes as Christians, what we think is we are not at war. The idea is when we put our faith in Christ for salvation, we leave the kingdom of the enemy and join the kingdom of God. And now, until the day we're with Christ, there will be opposition from the enemy who will seek to destroy and seek to discourage and seek to tell us we don't measure up. And we, as Christians, we need to have a view that says there's a battle going on. I'm not talking about a battle against the culture or against your neighbor. I'm talking about a battle against our own flesh and our battle against a spiritual enemy who wants, us to, wants to convince us that God is not real and he did not save us. To contend for the faith says, I want to be properly equipped to stand against the enemy who will seek to tempt me. All right, next question is this. What sin offends you the most? I want you to think of it. Don't, don't say it out loud. Oh, my goodness. What sin offends you the most? Like, you go, oh, my goodness. Oh, that's so gross. I don't even know what it is. That's not the one that's dangerous for you. The one that's dangerous for you is the one that doesn't offend See, that's, so that when, you're struggling, when we think about sin, that's what we ought to do. Well, I hope I, I'm never going to do that. Because that, whatever that is that bothers you, that's not the one that's going to give you problems. The one that's going to give you problems is the one that doesn't offend you. For most of us, I'll just say, because this is real vanilla, but it's, I think it's really applicable when you have more than three people in the room. That particular sin starts this way. You know, I really shouldn't say anything, but... Um, well, I want you to really pray for this situation. And the, what follows, I want you to pray for this situation, the Bible calls gossip. You making yourself out to look like super Captain Awesome Christian by destroying the reputation of somebody not in the room. Let's just put it this way. If you want to do that, two things. Don't. Secondly, go get that. And be man enough to at least do it in front of them. Okay? Can you do that? At least go get them and tear them down in their face. It actually, just to be honest, then it's not gossip. You're not going to do that, are you? Okay, then close your mouth. We don't need your prayer request. Sorry. I got a little riled up there. What sin offends you most? The most dangerous one is not the one that offends you, not the one that the news comes on. You get all riled up that we're not a Christian nation anymore. That one's not the one that you need to worry about. You need to worry about the one that you don't worry about. And you say, well, how am I supposed to figure that out? Pray to God that his Holy Spirit would convict you of that vanilla, I don't think it's a problem, sin that you need to get away from. And whatever it might be. There was a whole list of them I read earlier, and you could pick from. Usually, it's something that says nobody knows, nobody's getting hurt, and at least I don't do X. That's the way you know what it is. If you say the following, 
well, nobody's getting hurt, nobody knows, and at least I'm not murdering anybody, right? Like that makes it okay. So whatever you need those three phrases to get away with and feel okay with is your deal. You need to get over that. And you say, well, I don't know how. Then go get somebody. Say, I don't know how to get over this. That's how this works. Okay, back to the symptom check. You need to check your heart. Are you a grumbler? You ever okay with something? Or is everything not okay? Are we malcontented? We've said it this way many times. What is it, that one thing that must occur in my life for me to finally say everything is okay? Well, that's a, a symptom of being malcontented. Am I a divider among the body of believers? Do I talk about others when they're not around? Do I tear down others who are seeking to serve the Lord? What areas do I need to say, God, I repent, I confess? Last thing. Do you live in the warmth of God's love? You say, well, how do I live in the warmth of God's love? This is what it says. Waiting. This is, where is it? Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So what he says is, we're never going to be fully satisfied in this life. Waiting for the mercy of Christ says, I trust that God will make sure that for all of eternity, I am satisfied in Christ. And I will keep myself in God's love by saying no to the things today that only offer temporary satisfaction. Live in the warmth of God's love by waiting for Christ's return.